Welcome to the Stories Are Soul Food podcast, presented by Cannonball Books, the kids' fiction imprint of Cannon Press. Met a ghost of a king on the road when I first fell. Fire burning to my knees, to my knees I fell. Met a ghost of a king on the road. Brian's back from camping, everybody. <laughs> yeah, backpacking. Camping. <laughs> <laughs> Did you not camp? Well, well, there was camping, but it's yeah. important that the camp came out of a backpack. That's it just means that you walked <laughs> a long. He long just walked ways. to the campsite. Yeah, okay. Eagle Cap Wilderness. This was your own Very birthday nice. celebration. This was actually for my son's tenth, but it happened to be on my birthday as well. Yeah, so, so this was your birthday. So celebration. I co-opted it. That <laughs> <for> my... <laughs> was awesome. He got to, we we you know made him swim in an alpine lake despite his great sadness. <laughs> <laughs> Happy birthday, kid! <laughs> Get in there. <laughs> He said, what if I don't get in? I said, I would throw you in. Oh, there we go. There we, there we, there we go. Okay. True Confessions with Brian Cole yeah. on SAS. No, he had a great time. So did I. So uh, today's episode, what? 92? 92. What are we talking about? The question is more, more proof, bad words. What are we covering? Actually, it is on proof. It's a follow-up from our proof episode. So uh, um, the, the first, the question um let's see they they're really interested in your discussion so the power of stories and proof connecting with our whole abortion discussion especially as we appear to have crested a narrative turning point okay and so she was wondering if you have um scientific evidence logic god's law are all strong witnesses how do you apply what you are saying to the the abortion debate in our nation? And, I, and it does seem like a big storytelling thing because conservatives have lost that culture war story yeah. in, in a number of other. We areas. walked away from it like morons. Okay, so there we go. <laughs> so basically, do you think we gave up when we're looking at stuff like you know, say that take take uh, gay marriage or whatever is it as another one where it feels like it went the other direction? So instead of flipping back toward God's yeah. law, we flipped away. With Obama, uh, do you think story and proof has a part to play with that? So, uh, yeah, but I would say just kind of at the outset, what we got to is like proof is the obligation and belief when somebody leaves morally uh, burdened, and it's really important to not to put the our our goal is to convince somebody, but the we can't put the measure of success on convincing somebody. Right. Uh, this would mean that Paul was frequently horrend a horrendous failure. Oh, when he preaches as a speaker and a he, preacher. Yeah, he preaches the same thing in two places, and in one place there's a revival, and the other he's stoned. You know, it's like that's the outcome does not measure whether or not he's proven something. Like, and the fact is, being stoned is even evidence that he did obligate belief, and people raged, people hated it, people attacked him to try to silence him. Yeah, you said persuasion's not the goal. Yep, the persuade. Well, put it this way: persuasion is the goal. Uh, however, it is not the measure of success. Yeah, there you and go. And so you're trying to persuade because you love the people in front of you and you want to try to bring them to the truth, but you can't say, I did a bad job because I didn't get them. You're not the Holy Spirit. You don't bring efficacious grace. Yeah. You just don't have that ability. You're not even allowed to turn the heat up until someone flips sometimes. <laughs> <Yeah>. like, <laughs> so, so you are there trying to prove, trying to obligate belief, but you are not there uh, in any way, um, measuring whether or not you've succeeded by their reaction. Cause then you can manipulate, you can right. lie, you can deceive, you can trick and so on. You Torture. can create hypocrisy. When I, um, made my first 
splash as a writer, as a whatever gadfly at the time. I don't know. Uh, it was around debunking the Shroud of Turin. Oh, right. And um, when, I, when I came up with a theory that actually explained the Shroud of Turin and how it was made, a lot of people attacked me from around the entire world who are believers and said, why does it matter if it's false, if it's actually aiding faith? Mm. Um, and that, that right there is death to the church. The instant the you church, say, why does it matter? Yeah, if the it's inst- true. Why, true or false. Why does it matter if it's true or false? As long as it instills faith. And that was probably the single most common thing I heard through that whole thing. Cause they saw you doing what they thought was a move of an atheist tearing down. Yeah. I had no friends in that one. The atheists didn't like that. I uh, said, this is an argument over what Jesus is wearing on Easter. You know, this is not, <laughs> this is not a question of whether there was a resurrection. This is a question of whether this is a fraud. This particular relic is a fraud, which it is. But, um, and I'll say it's a fraud because I believe the Bible. The Bible says it's a fraud. Right. I thought that was so, a great example because you said that John has the fact strips, that the yeah. head cloth is separate from yeah. the rest of his body. Yep. Shroud of Turin, it's all in one. So that's a great example of proof not being, or right. truth not being proof. Yep. Everyone and could so read John. <laughs> many people have been convinced by the shroud. Does God use things like that? Yeah, of course he does. And he has the authority to do so. Mm. Um, people can convert because they think they're going to get eaten by a bear when there is no bear. <laughs> you know, it's like, this is God can do all sorts of things and we don't have the authority to go there. So when people overwhelmingly objected from the faith side saying you're damaging faith, you're, you're on, you know, you're destroying this bedrock of, of millions of people's faith. Uh, that's really disturbing. And that's why so many people are outside of, uh, well, so many people have the excuses to be outside of the faith because the people inside don't care about truth. They're supposed to be the ones who care about truth, but they care about outcomes. They care about manipulating people into the group. And that's not the goal. Um, so if you look at the nature of proof as obligation of belief and you look at the three types of proof classically understood uh, by the Greeks um, and on down, you have ethos, which is authority, credibility. Then you have pathos, which is basically an emotional resonance, emotional appeal, and then you have logos. What we have in uh, the church as descended from Scots and Germans is an overwhelming emphasis on logos and to the point of idolatry and to the point of complete failure. And so they want, God gives us two or three witnesses to obligate the, you know, obligate belief in our fellow creatures. And we just want to go on one and we want to pretend like logic can stand alone and logic is not itself built on faith or built on inductive, you know, the inductive establishment of premises or built on trusting the authority of others who gave you that premise. You know, you can't really function with logic in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Logic, when it's working and, and in a healthy way, is completely dependent on faith positions, induction, authority, trust. Meaning, do you trust that thing you read? Do you trust the translations of scripture? Do you trust the word of God? Um, Do you trust that scientist who said something because he had this many PhDs, which means you have faith in Harvard? Like, do you have faith? What do you, where do you have faith? I mean, I mean, all logicians agree. You can't even jump from specifics, you know, can't jump from induction to deduction. We already know there's huge divisions. And yet. Every single, <laughs> every single deductive syllogism is built on induction. Right. And so in right. order to establish any premise to be used in a deductive syllogism, 
induction, meaning basing things on particulars, examples trying to get from particulars yeah. to a universal principle that's always true, trying to get from a particular truth claim, you know, some dogs have four legs to the universal of all dogs have four legs. That's a leap that requires faith. Like it requires, you're, you're not allowed to say that. Yeah. So to get to the all dogs have four legs statement, you have to have faith and you're incidentally wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, some dogs have wheels on the back. Um, <laughs> I've seen them. <laughs> yeah. But it's, uh, so anyway, the point is that we're given these three. And so when you, when you speak to a person, when you speak to a real human being, who's a narratival, uh, creature, who's a character in a story, you come to them with the three, you come to them knowing they've been given a mind. They've been given the ability to reason. They've also had the law of God written on their hearts. They have a conscience. Yeah. Like there's, there's, a, and that, that was sensation feeling. That is something on the pathos, you know, so you're trying well, to. And the Bible describes law. The Psalms are full of law as yeah. feeling like yep. it's, it's, yep. it's, it's a lot of. And taste. how you feel about the law yeah. too. taste, taste and see, yep. um, <clears throat> you know, love and, and so on. So you have the law of God written on their hearts and you know, it is, they were made in the image of God. They bear the image of God. And there are things that feel wrong. Like they are, they are built that way such that, you know, there are things that feel wrong and you should not be doing that. Yeah. <laughs> and they know that it's, it, it's that kind of knowledge. And that knowledge is, is, is innate. That knowledge is baked into them. God. I mean, it's comic book level with the angel and the devil. Yeah. Everyone knows it. So they have the ability to reason in their mind. They also as image bearers are wired to feel certain ways about certain things. Um, uh, and then you get to ethos, credibility, authority, and whether you're speaking with uh, having done your homework, knowing what you're talking about, citing people who agree with you, or the authority, then getting bigger, the authority of scripture, the authority of God. And, and to merge all these things, the authority of that law that's written on their heart. So the ethos right. of the feeling, like the pathos has authority if it's actually baked in there because they are okay. made in the image of God. And the same thing's true of the mind. So the ability to reason, why is this authoritative? Why do, because, because faith, because they trust the one who gave them the ability to reason. Mm -hmm. um, there's faith and there's authority in it. And so you can't ever really just pull one of these out and just have it stand on its own. And whenever, uh, whenever we see somebody try to do that, we, they fail, but also it just is ugly. It's disgusting. So mm. when, when a dad says to a, a curious little mind who asks, you know, fill in the blank about Noah's flood and dad says, because, and they say, but why? And he says, because I'm your dad. And I said, so, you know, like, what are you doing? I mean, that's just nonsense. You're living out a pretty horrendously disgusting narrative there as a character, which then will create distaste on the pathos level will cause your kid to spit this out. So the tyrant is feeding you the Noah story. Yeah. And so, so the, the tyrant can have the truth and be, and be hammering away in a way that makes you feel about it, uh, in a completely, uh, wrong headed way. I mean, like you can, you can feel incorrectly yeah. because of how somebody is pursuing yeah. it on the flip side. One of the favorite, one of the favorite critiques of Christian kids is like, Hey, you just grew you're only a, you're only yeah. a Christian because you grew up in a Christian home or went to church. Yep. And to that you say, amen. Like, yep. I'm a Christian. No, and they need to be, they, they need to have learned enough to know that that's bulverism. Yeah. You know, where they can just be like, yeah, this is, that's fallacious. 
Insert um, ad for adorable fallacies. Yeah, adorable fallacies. <laughs> and, and hat tip to C.S. Lewis for naming it. Yep. Uh, Bulverism is the fallacy when you identify the cause of someone's uh, discovery of a position. Instead of rebutting. Instead of rebutting the position. Instead of addressing yeah. the position, you say, you, you only say that because you're a girl. You only say that because. If anybody says, you only said that because, they're now committing the, the fallacy of bulverism. Um, and... Right. You're, uh, but you think about this. You say you're only, you're only rich because your dad worked hard and left you money. It's like, <laughs> Just it's almost... like okay, sure. <laughs> yeah, true. That, what does that mean about whether or not it's my money? What, what does that mean about, right. is this in fact gold that he left me? And so you only have that intellectual position because God, by his grace, placed you in this family that embraced that truth and you were raised in it. Right. It's like, Okay. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, it's a misunderstanding. I mean, to simplify, but accurately, we're Christians and our kids are Christians because we spanked them and told them what Christianity was. And, and there's Obviously. basically, there are narratival <laughs> causes. Yes. There are narratival causes to every single position. Definitely. Because the person holding that position is a character. And the Holy Spirit uses those narratival means to You're only a Christian because you felt guilty in a strip club and went and read the Bible. And the guy who converted for exactly that reason, like, yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, right. you, you identify the narratival circumstance. You're only a Christian because you're about to be executed. You're only a Christian because you're in a Flannery O'Connor story and the misfits about to shoot you in the head. And so you convert. <laughs> it's like, yes, you're only a Christian because because Charlemagne said he was going to execute you if you didn't repent and be baptized. And yeah, right. You're, you're correct. And the cause of somebody's turning to Christ, the narratival cause does not in any way undermine the logos involved after the fact. Like logos is one of the ways we check our work as narratival creatures after the fact, but yeah. every character is moved. And this, this is the long way around to answering the question we started with. Every character is moved by the narratival causes. They're moved as characters first. And then logic is uh, a way of checking their worksheet, but also of then setting up defenses to try to keep people from moving them again. Yeah. And so, I mean, it flips the other way too. We've talked about that <laughs> a good number of times. Uh, when, when someone deconverts because of something awful yeah. that happened, it seems legitimate. Right. And the, the question should be, well, does God like the awful thing that happened or not? Yeah. And as in those conversations, you point out that you're on the side of the hypocrite if you abandon the faith. Right. You know, he also did not yeah, believe. The hypocrite was attacking the faith. So if, if an atheist says, well, I'm an atheist because the pastor of my church when I was a teenager was doing a ton of drugs and sleeping with the secretary. We all look at that and say, hmm, like mm. we understand how that moved you to this position. But when somebody says, I'm a Christian because my dad was magnificent and the pastor was incredibly faithful and humble and served for decades without, without glory. And I watched him lay his life down repeatedly and I want to be like him. That's why I'm a Christian. Oh, then we say, that's not a good reason. <laughs> like that's, mm, yeah. people look at that as like, that's a, that's a flawed reason as opposed to the negative. My dad was abusive. So I left the faith is seen as a great reason. Right. Um, and a deft evangelist will tell the person who left the faith because of that, you've now joined your father's team. Your father hated the faith as well. And he was attacking God's children. And now you are over there on his, on his side. Um, and then to get to the, the overall discussion around, um, abortion, gay marriage, et cetera, that's really just a question of how vulnerable evangelicals are to pathos and the Western world is. Mm. So the worst thing an evangelical can ever 
uh, experience is being told they're being mean. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they've just deeply wired. If you're being mean to an unbeliever, uh, if you're being mean to sinners, then you don't really care about them. Uh, and that is a lever that, that moves them rapidly. And so, uh, they tried that they've tried and tried and tried with abortion and they failed because ultimately it's really hard to shift the meanness when you're killing a baby. Yeah. That's just a tough shift. <laughs> and, but you do see people get moved around rape and incest and they suddenly forget that, you they're know, still like, killing a baby, you're still yeah. killing a baby and you see them get moved there. Why'd they get moved? It's like, well, because they've been made to feel mean over yeah, there. Exactly. If they feel mean, then their, their logic follows their, the logos, their position, their explicit statement follows. Now on Obergefell, et cetera, they felt mean immediately. You know, it's like, there's just, you're mean. Yeah. Love yeah. is love. You're mean. Yep. And so you watch people get rolled. So, but the, the Roe debate has been overwhelmingly a place of stubbornness in evangelical storytelling. Um, you know, yeah. where they've just never lost track of the fact that this is the me- the meanness is going the other direction. Uh, I do think that in the power of stories is in pathos. Okay. It leads, it leads with pathos in terms of making people taste and see, smell, experience, and feel a position before they fully assessed a position. Now, conservatives are bad and have walked away from storytelling because they overemphasize logos. Um, they then, when they try to tell a story, all they do is try to spoon feed the logos. They drift into propaganda really, really, really quickly. What's what's that October movie? October Baby. Yeah, October Baby. You know, I, I felt I've like, never seen it. Yeah. Okay. All right. So well, we can't go there. I, I enjoy parts of it. <laughs> I was enjoying parts of it. It's been a while since I've seen it, but I did feel. Man, if you could stay truer to this woman and make me feel that she's real and don't make me feel like this is a sermon that I suddenly switched into. So Juno is my favorite piece of pro-life art, and it was written by a stripper who's not pro-life. Yeah. You know, and it's yeah. And it it actually captures this um moment perfectly when there's a, a high school girl who's going to abort her baby and a protester from her from her own high school sees her outside a clinic and yells, Your baby has fingernails. Yeah. And that's the tipping point. Realizing that her baby has fingernails is yeah. like, okay, that that's all it took. And then you have you but you play out the story. You're following the narrative of this this girl and her journey and the emotional journey around it in a very interesting way, in a way that makes you realize that Diablo Cody has seen this firsthand. You know, that she's seen this and knows it. Is from that the writer. Yeah, from her from her life. In her life experience, she's seen w- women go through this in a very authentic way. And, you know, so. Mm. And then a bunch of idiots after Juno came out, incidentally, uh, a bunch of evangelical idiots were upset talking about how uh, the film they believed was increasing teen pregnancies as a result. It's like, no, it's reducing abortions. The teen pregnancies were there. You just now see them mm-hmm. um, because girls were, you know, carrying their baby to term. Uh, in the wake of that film. Wow. Um, and, and evangelicals got mad about it. They got mad about the, the stats. Like there's more teen. see Hollywood increased teen pregnancy. And it's like, Oh, you dummies. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the, mm. the point is we tend to, as conservatives, we tend to try to get into the lesson, the moral, the logic. I'm going to show you the logic of your position. 
And so conservatives like the books of Ayn Rand, um, for example, which are trash. And <laughs> this is one of my favorite of your rants when you go off, when you go off on, <laughs> on rant. <laughs> but it's but conservatives love it. No, but don't you see your point? But don't you, but don't you see your point? I'm like, I see your puppets. Yeah. Like I see her dragging puppets around a punch and Judy puppet stage and then smashing the bad one. And mm. like, and even entered inserting herself as a character in that little punch and Judy's stage to then just beat this one to death. Like I'm going to, it's, it's horrendous. I can't stand her stuff. I really can't. It's not to say that she never did any, like any one chapter correctly. I just really, really abominate those, those stories. Um, because they're propaganda, they're propaganda. Yeah, don't pieces. they have full paragraphs of explaining the worldview of each character and they, they just have, pause they, and... they have wild exposition dumps. And then when she needs a character to be smashed, she makes the character smashed and she'll have a character make decisions completely out of like completely out of line with who they are uh, to make her point. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was the fountainhead that I was reading because my wife just, well, True confessions. This is a ha- this is a happy chocolate chip for this episode. Uh, when we got married, I I realized that my wife had never read Lord of the Rings. It just hadn't happened. Um, she wasn't opposed. She just never gotten there. She read Russians and and Rand and other things. And I started giving her Woodhouse to read and making her read things that were not depressing. Um, <laughs> and. Um, but when I realized she hadn't read Lord of the Rings, I skipped classes for a week in grad school, basically, and just read the entire trilogy out loud to her. Um, and the, you know that was it. We, we broke. We took breaks from meals, and I read myself absolutely hoarse, and read through all three books immediately because it was one of those things where a these are great, and b they need to be heard. Like these books need to be heard. Uh, David Radford of the Grey Havens of our fantastic bumper music and I were texting about this. Yep, goes to the king for all of you who've yeah, asked me over where and over. He was, um, he was saying that he doesn't mind Rings of Power as a completely different show. Like if it was just a show that had nothing to do with Tolkien, hmm. he'd be like, oh, this is kind of, I don't mind hanging out in this world. <laughs> um, but as a Tolkien show, really, really bothers him. Um, but he also said he'd really objected to something I'd said in an earlier podcast about uh, the, the the Lord of the Rings movies versus the books, because he came to the stories through the movies first mm-hmm. and thought that, you know, anyway, he thought I was wrong. And then he went and read the books. Well, remember, people can be converted because of the bear that's not real. Yeah. It's a similar way. People <laughs> so can come he, to he Tolkien through of, the Yeah, movies. exactly. <laughs> so he went and he read them, but then he since listened to the audiobooks and he said that he thinks re- that is really the way to consume. Okay. Lord of the Rings is to have heard it. And I, I really agree with that. It's very, it's written to the ear. It's structured that way. I grew up listening to them read and yeah, we're in the middle, you know, nine down to one. Yeah. And you can get little kids to pay attention to these when they're far from reading it. Yep. And you know, it's anyway, consuming it via hearing, reading aloud is, is really, really fantastic. So I did that in grad school. I was like, okay, I think I, I remember going to one or two classes that week. Um, in courses, I really felt that I needed to, but I blew off all these classes and just read by the end of the week. Like my wife was all in like, okay, this is amazing. I was doing voices. I did the whole thing. We should have, re- we should have <laughs> recorded it. Um, <laughs> but it was, it was deep commitment. I was like, no, you need to actually 
you need to actually hear these. Um, not just read these while I'm, I'm gone, read these while I'm at class. It's like, you must hear them. Um, and the thing is when you have, and as part of that, she wanted me to read Fountainhead on the other side. And uh, I think, I, I think came, I got, it came with a counterweight. <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, we, that was a few months later, uh, cause we read Lord of the Rings in Maryland where I was in grad school and then, then Fountainhead was happening back in Idaho, probably nine months later. And I remember getting really close to the end of this massive monstrosity and just literally throwing the book. <laughs> and it's one of the, I've tossed books down. I have discarded books. This time I hurled the book. Like I wanted the whole thing to come undone. Um, because it already had, <laughs> but it's, <laughs> but anyway, the, the point is conservatives who want to make a point. I can't tell you how many times I've had people pitch me or, or say they have an idea for a TV show, a novel or a film. Mm. And then they say the message. They don't right. actually have an idea for a story. They don't watch people as characters and stories. They have little morals and bumper stickers and things that they want yeah. uh, to be wrapped in chocolate. Yeah. You and know given how to children are supposed to obey their parents. Yep. That's my children's book. I'm idea. doing a book about how kids need to obey their parents. It's like, no, you're, that's not. No, sorry. It's not how this works. Yep. Um, and so I think that as conservatives have over obsessed about Logos as if it stands on its own and they've lost its relationship to ethos and pathos, um, you know, they've just, their art has wildly suffered. Everything's suffered over there. Okay. So here's the thing for, do you think October baby is more about the people who are already convinced? It's like a, it's reminding us why it matters. So it's not like an evangelistic piece or not a piece of art. It's more of like a team sponsorship. I think I that, mean, that can happen for sure in, in the faith market. I actually, like I said, I haven't seen that one. Yeah. Um, but that tells you something where it's like, I, it, didn't, it didn't interest me. You didn't feel the need to watch uh, yeah, it? Yeah, it didn't, it didn't interest me at all. Um, I don't, I don't remember hating it. I don't remember. No, hating I've heard. It I've heard people talk about how it's it's a good movie. I've not. Uh, so I'm not attacking it. I actually just genuinely. Yeah. Didn't. Oh, it's about this girl who in her journey. It's like I. I'm. I'm convinced. I. I look at that and I think it's going to try to convince me of something I already believe, and I'm not. Right. I don't well, have those. I, I don't have those available. Ninety minutes. It made me wonder if we didn't. If conservatives did not do that for Obergefell. Like we let ourselves forget why marriage matters. <laughs> yeah. And if we needed more of those pieces saying, hey, no, you know, you've already lost heterosexual marriage. So you, that's why we're losing homosexual marriage. But maybe, maybe that's not the tool of Yeah, I don't even know. The, the problem is when you try to get out there and wage war with fiction, I think you're losing track again of the nature of it at all. Conservatives right. get out there and you're yeah. losing track of the, this is food. Mm -hmm. You know, this is, I want to try to cook up a dinner that convinces everyone of something. And right. It's, and it's like, um, yeah. So, okay. Like, how, what do you, what do you mean? Like, how does that even work? And then we can all realize that that does work. Like if I, if I have people into my home and I, you know, I make them fantastic meat and the kids all sit down around the table and everyone's joyful and the communion, the breaking of bread that we all share together is, is really, um, pleasant. The aroma is, is attractive and they, they want more of this. And how is, what's the foundation that this is built on now that can happen. 
um, that can happen naturally and organically if we just try to have a good dinner. Mm. Like people will show up as narratival characters and they be welcomed into your home and they have this experience and it can move them because they're narratival creatures. They move for narratival reasons as opposed to for logical reasons. Like realize that they move like paper clips move to magnets. They get they get drawn towards death out of a love for death or they get drawn mm. uh, towards the light because the light is so refreshing and beautiful. And the, the idea of being forgiven and unburdened of all these things is is magnificent. And then they'll start building logical structures to justify what they're doing. So when I write a, a novel or when I try to write a film, I am overwhelmingly trying to focus on uh, the same way I'm trying to focus on a massive pile of tri-tip roasts that I'm that I'm doing on the grill. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I'm I'm doing it that way. You know, I'm looking at flavor. I'm looking at uh, aroma. I'm looking for the whole meal of it. And knowing that the meal will affect people, but I'm not losing track of the meal of it to try to get to the effect. Mm. So if you were having somebody over and I, we've had, I grew up many an atheist at our table. Uh, I've broken bread with, you know, guys all over the map um, from Christopher Hitchens on, on down to guys who are professional, like touring atheist debaters, you know, so Andrew Sullivan and Christopher Hitchens and all these guys were at our dining room table um, at different phases, my parents' table. If, if we had said, let's make the honey butter so that it really convinces them, that let's make sure we put the logic on top of the honey butter. Mm. It's like, you're, you're just going to fail. Like, and, and your heart's not in it. You're, you're trying to manipulate. You're doing a, it's a weird thing. But if you actually are are crafting the food, the rolls, the honey butter, the meat, you know, the potatoes, all the things you're crafting them because they are beautiful. And these things that are beautiful honor God and their beauty that laces them. It really, it really doesn't fuse them with authority. And it really does make the characters who receive them feel. Yeah. And it makes them feel in a certain way. But if you do it for that reason, then it immediately gets shallower. It gets more shallow and it kind of starts to fade. If you are there really directly living in the presence of God, trying to create something beautiful that you're going to give to his image bearers um, and you're going to give it to them because like you're honoring God through doing so. And there's a, there's a degree to which they can walk out that door and hate you and you don't mind mm-hmm. because you, you, you made the best cheesy potatoes you possibly could have made. Um, that's right. how, and, that's how and, I want to pursue fiction. Right. The cheesy potatoes would be a counterbalance to that argument of like, no, I don't hate you. Yeah. Didn't you eat the cheesy potatoes? <laughs> I gave you my best cheesy potatoes. <laughs> These are literally my best cheesy potatoes. Um, so when I'm writing, when I'm writing stories, that's really what I'm doing. I'm, I, the food image, the food metaphor that we use here on the podcast is not accidental. And when conservative Christians get hung up on wanting their art, uh, to be a logical argument when they get hung up on that. Uh, that's like obsessing over the caloric breakdown of a meal. It's like obsessing over, uh, whether Mm. the food pyramid is being honored, um, Mm. in what you put on the table. And that's just not what we're supposed to be doing in that moment. In that moment as characters, that's not how we're supposed to behave. So when I'm sending Ashtown burials out into the world, cupboards, um, these gotcha. shows I'm working on, or even ninja cartoons, I am I'm really trying to make cookies. I'm, tr- I'm trying to make 
gotcha. after school cookies, the best ones that, that I can make and put them out there in the world. And I can, because I think that I've got the, the bedrock of truth, goodness, and beauty because of, yeah. uh, you know, the way God made the world. Um, but I'm not trying to convince anyone of anything. Yeah. Like that's not, that's not what this is. I'm just trying to feed them, just trying to give them food. And as conservatives abandon that, they, they just drift into, but how do we accomplish our political goals with our art? And mm -hmm. it's like, just, you know what, just focus on honoring God with your art and let him use it. Mm. You know, just. That's good. So that's the, and the ethos pathos logos of it all means that when you've done a really great job, you have to know that there are times when I've eaten cheesy potatoes and I am obligated to believe <laughs> like there's, <laughs> there's an obligation, obligation <laughs> of belief comes to narrative creatures through narrative means. Totally. And then when you assess it, like, yeah, the logic sound, there's an authority to this. Then, yeah, this is resonating with my, uh, my architecture as an image bearer. Like this is plucking the strings in my heart in a harmony. Yeah. And I can't help but hear it. Yep. And that's, that's my grandma Murdy's contribution. You know, oh, yeah. it's cheesy potatoes. You cheesy know? potatoes and amazing cinnamon pull apart. Yeah, exactly. That's it. Yeah, which we got, <laughs> we actually ate, I don't even know how many of those cinnamon pull aparts that she'd give us every year. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, Brian's grandmother provided the world with some great cinnamon pull aparts around yeah. Christmas time every year. Yep, every year. Pretty fantastic. Yep. Um, and that honestly is a lot more effective than having written, um, you know, an adorable fallacies book, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, uh, yeah that that's great that's great uh as we're looking forward then communities in in this in the post row overturn you i mean i think we'd say hey you need to be doing what good christians should do yeah again you're don't be asking how do i flip the national conversation unless you know you're part of i don't know the yeah senate. unless you're in the, unless you're in the senate <laughs> or the white house or right yeah. Instead, it's, are you making the cheesy potatoes? Yep. Are you how, eating How them? many people have eaten the world's best cinnamon pull apart as made by you? I know. Um, right. And it's, you know, like, what is it and why? Are you doing it as a trick? Or are you doing it because you actually have access to something truly beautiful that you can do and that you can then give and share, which is itself a narratival reflection of the gospel and grace and all these other, all these other pieces. So it's, um, and really realize that you never really get to see when you live like this, you never get to see the fruit of what you've done. I mean, there's times, sure, that you can. But when I look back at my own familial history of like these huge moments that turned uh, the history of my own family, the people who were responsible for them, you know, just never knew, huh. uh, frequently never knew. So you mean elementary school teacher in a one room schoolhouse in nebraska oh right like the care she showed to my grandfather when he was behind because of illness and had fallen behind an extra year and that she just focused on him and got him caught all the way up like when she had one room schoolhouse yeah. and she was like 18 years old yeah and then because of that he ends up in the navy because he ends up in the navy he marries my grandmother like it's all these things that just right happen and i exist and my father exists and all the things uh, you know, downstream because one person is doing a thing that they don't really think matters. Now, does she need to look at that fat faced kid in her one room schoolhouse in Nebraska and say, man, I better get on it. Cause if I don't get on it, this kid's never going to meet, you know, 
Bessie Dodds in Japan <laughs> and is never going to have Douglas Wilson as a son. And so there will be no ACCS and there will be no, right. you know, classical Christian education revival in no North America. Podcast. There will be no stories or soul food podcast and the world just could not tolerate <laughs> such an absence. Um, um, those 92 episodes would not yeah, exist. Those 92 <laughs> episodes would not happen. Like that's not what she's doing. Like that's not how she acts, but that's the fruit her actions have. Mm. And so you, we always have to live as if God could take this into wild cultural movements, your care for a third grader in a classroom, you know, your care for that kid motivated rightly can have culture swinging consequences that you don't get to see. Yeah. You know, it's like tell way down the line, but you, you know, giving that kid a cookie, baking the world's best cookies or the world's best cinnamon pull aparts because I'm a Christian woman. Damn it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, See like, previous episodes. <laughs> yeah. You know, like this is, no, this is my mission. Yeah. And I take my mission seriously. That can change the world because we live in a story. And those are the touches that change the world. Mm. Uh, we're writing big syllogisms. Uh, have they changed anybody? <laughs> I mean. A few people. They've rotted some things out. I mean, they can be really destructive, but. Not really. I mean, Tolkien took Lewis up on a hilltop when the wind was just right in the beech trees and the moon was there and all the pathos was aligned. <laughs> like the pathos was perfectly Was that perfect. their persuasion, persuasive moment? I don't know that one. Yeah. Okay. So when Tolkien uh, took Lewis up on the hill and famously told him like, this is a myth. Yes, but it's a myth. that's true. Oh, okay. You know, it's like, it wasn't an argument. It wasn't logic. They were on an evening walk. And it was everything lined up. And when he did that, he, it was like he plucked the strings in Lewis's heart in a way that Lewis heard the harmony and his anger mm. evaporated and his, his hatred of it evaporated. And, and then everything C.S. Lewis did and touched and impacted, you know, cascaded down from there through culture and through the entire world because of his friend Toller's taking him up onto a hill at the right moment and, and just saying something. He didn't roll out syllogisms. Mm. Um, it just all resonated in that, you know, in that moment. So, and how much has, you know, Tumnus affected the world, you know, one little figment of, of Lewis's imagination and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and Aslan, you know, he's made up a, he's made up a lion. And then that yeah. lot, like the impact of that imagination, uh, of that meal that he, he made for everybody, um, has been incredible. So be motivated by the beauty, uh, really by the beauty, by the truth, goodness, and beauty of the scene in front of you as a character, be motivated by executing that. And don't Hmm. worry about, you know, kicking over the walls of Babylon so much. Um, they'll go down. Like those are, they're going to go down. Yeah. Um, plus worship, I think is described that way. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. You're doing that part on Sunday morning. (laughs) And are you getting, and again, see the scene. So if, if we back up and Sunday morning is your house is full of crackle and snapping and you're barking at your girls. Cause you're late. Like, come on, come on, come on. Snap, 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 snap. Like, well, you're already failing as characters. Yeah. Like as you go to worship God, you've already undercut the entire act. Um, by doing it that way, Mm. you know, so it's here. I'm mad at you. Because you took my shoes without asking and you're being slow and I told you not to do your hair that way. And, you know, all this stuff, get in the car, get in the car. We're like, get in the car, get in the car. <laughs> and it's, you're undermining the whole thing. 
Um, you know, yeah. You're showing up with a sour spirit. You're showing up as a hypocrite. You're showing up having already contradicted the entire act. So, I mean, this all comes back to stories because that's what this podcast is. Be a character living faithful moments in your story. Truth, goodness, and beauty in front of you right now in the next two minutes, the next three minutes, the next five minutes. Uh, and know that that will change the world. I mean, that it does because the world is a story and that's how characters move things. Yeah. Um, God doesn't miss any threads. No, ever. There's no just hanging chads yeah. anywhere. And you can be in a one room schoolhouse in Nebraska and have no vision of anything other than this kid needs my help. Yeah. And that's, that's it. That person looks like they need a sandwich. <laughs> like this, right. yeah. A really, a really good one. Oh, that's how we're supposed to function. That is ultimately what ends up obligating belief and moving nations and peoples more than any distilled reason. So there we go. Episode 92 in the books. It's a wrap. And then later on, I'm sure we'll have to talk more about bad words since I cussed. <laughs> there, will be, there will be questions. Also, we left him hanging on the, why, on the Shroud of Turin. So we'll also come back to <laughs> Didn't that. Didn't we do an episode about the Shroud? I don't think so. Did we? Oh, well, so I just rattled one of the skeletons in my closet. I know. I just, I, I I just moved on. I think so. Yeah. There it goes. There's, you didn't even answer it. I thought I'm just going <laughs> to let this hang and they'll watch the whole episode and still be disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, uh, it's not even my only skeleton. No. There's other skeletons in there too, but just know this. The shroud is fake. A menagerie of skeletons. The shroud is fake and I know how to do it. There we go. We'll leave it on that. That's good. <laughs>